0: You are listening to Beyond the Jargon, a jargon-free look at graduate students and their research journeys here at UVic. Welcome to Beyond the Jargon. I'm your host, Liz MacArthur, and joining me in the studio today is Jeremy Beller, who's doing his PhD in anthropology here at UVic. Welcome. Welcome.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: I just interviewed somebody actually before you came in who's doing a a master's in anthropology studying um, MDMA use uh, and drug use at the Center for Addictions Research in BC. And she said that um, as she was leaving that she often sits down with like fellow grad students who are in anthropology and and they're sort of like, oh, that's very different. That's not what we're studying. So um, I'm excited to interview another uh, anthropology student right after and uh, find out what you're studying. Um, Maybe you can sort of narrow it down. Down rather than just anthropology, because I'm sure it's sure,
1: yeah. sure, not a problem. Uh, anthropology, yeah, it's a, it's a, a broad term, basically the study of man or the study of human behavior, um, and and so within that there's basically three to four subfields, if you will: uh, cultural anthropology, uh, physical anthropology, and archaeology. Archaeology is my field of interest, my specialty, and that deals with the study of past human behavior. So what we'll, we'll do with that is we'll look at artifact remains, uh, features, um, things like this skeletal uh, material and tissue that has been preserved um, over long periods of time and try to reconstruct the associated human behavior from that. Now in specific, uh, my dissertation research analyzes hominin behavior from about uh, 150,000 years ago to 40,000 years ago At a site in Jordan that we are excavating under the direction of April Noel, my uh, dissertation advisor. Hmm. So what we have there is really an in-depth look at how hominins adapted and were able to survive in adverse climactic conditions. At our site, it's a desert, desert refugium, basically a desert oasis around which water The water source which is spring fed will shrink and contract or expand based on the uh, temperature of the region the geomorphology of the sediment and essentially the climate Hmm. so we're trying to figure out how these ancient hominins adapted to uh climate change essentially
0: interesting um so do you sounds like you get to go and actually be in the field and work on the site
1: Yes, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Um, I've only been there one year, last summer, uh, because this is my first year at mm. UVic. But uh, for the past several years, April and her team have uh, returned there and excavated each year. Mm. So we, ha- we have quite a bit of material uh, under which we can study already. Mm-hmm. Um, And my dissertation is just an extension of that study.
0: When you talk about the material that you already have to study, these are things that have been excavated. Can you give maybe some example of things that have been found that you're you're studying now?
1: Sure, sure. Some of it hasn't been published, so I won't give too much away. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'll wait for April to do that herself. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, yes, we we have a, a wealth of stone tools and faunal remains. So a lot of butchered animal bones, many of which are fragmented, Uh, In fact, uh, we have uh, things like rhino, camel, horse, and a large but extinct elephant as well. Not quite woolly mammoth, but a similar species. Hmm. And among the stone tools are various types that belong to different types of hominin species. So in one stratigraphic level, there will be a Neanderthal occupation at the site, and in later years, uh, more close to about 50,000 years ago, we'll have another occupational site that was probably occupied by Homo sapiens, anatomically modern Homo sapiens, such as you and me. Hmm. And in addition, we'll also have much later periods, such as about um, 300,000 years ago, where Homo erectus, Um, probably dwelt, and will have stone tools that are indicative of their behavior.
0: I guess, you know, it's one thing to hear about things that have been excavated and then carefully categorized and and then researched, but the actual finding of it must be quite chaotic because, you know, things are at certain levels, I guess, where... um, where their sites are but when you're digging in the dirt I guess it can be tricky is it is that a difficult process um, sort of sifting through what goes where what is useful, what is not? Are, are there things that you find that, you're, that are just like garbage essentially that you can't use?
1: Well essentially everything that's been discarded by ancient humans is their garbage that we're digging up. Right. It's kind of humorous that way. But uh, you're right when you say that it's basically putting back together a big puzzle, because not only do you have to deal with time, but you also have to deal with uh, spatial parameters. So we often will be able to sequence uh, certain sites just based on which layer is deposited upon another. But once we get the dating back from those individual layers, we'll often find that maybe there's a time slot that's missing, or we have to go back and reanalyze things. Hmm. So sometimes it is tricky, but that's just part of the fun and enjoyment, to find, you know, these uh, these tools like such as a hand axe and to recognize that this was used by someone about 250,000 years ago who had no knowledge beyond their local region and, of course, had no knowledge that we would one day be digging up their remains and analyzing them. is it's, it's somewhat profound and you know, I'm often... You know, left in wonder at it, mm-hmm. which is part of the reason why I do this.
0: Yeah, have you? I mean, I sort of assume, but maybe not. Have you actually, like, just dis- found something yourself? And that, like, maybe the first time you found something, can you describe like what how that felt? I guess.
1: Yes. Um, <clears throat> when I was an undergrad, that was my first field season. Uh, I think I was a second year, and I worked at a site in Israel, and it was a tell basically a fancy word for a stratified mound where there's cities built on top of cities, on top of cities throughout the ages. And I remember sinking my trowel in for the first time and just pulling up little bits of pottery. And, of course, smashed pottery is probably nothing fantastic, but to me at the time I I was just like, wow, this is 5,000 years old and some Canaanites in Israel during the early Bronze Age Hmm. utilized this just for everyday activities. Mm -hmm. And of course, after that, we found much more and I still haven't really lost the enjoyment to it. Mm hmm. Yes.
0: Um, this is kind of out there, but like, do you think about what people will be digging up from us, you know, one day, uh, <laughs> I don't know, do you mm-hmm. ever think about that or, or about our garbage dumps or just maybe that we will appear to be like cat worshipers or something if mm-hmm. all that's left is our internet <laughs> record? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, the archaeology of the future might be quite different. There is a, there's a there's f- a famous cartoon that floats around the blogosphere these days of uh, archaeologists finding uh, cubicles in, say, an office building. And because the cubicles are so small and there's just a chair and a c- computer, they often, uh, the caption is that this looks like it was an ancient prison of some sort. Right. Um, but ar- archaeologists of the future... W- I mean, they'll, they'll find a lot more durable material than we will, such as uh, concrete structures, mm. plastics. Um, <clears throat> but archaeologists of the present will often analyze modern human populations to try to understand things like decay rates and where people place things when they're finished using them in order to establish an analogy with humans of the past. Mm-hmm. For instance, if, if we ourselves have a garbage dump where we dump all our garbage today, then we might try to locate such a garbage dump, um, in as simple, simplistic terms as possible, at another site. You know, for instance, where are they dumping their garbage?
0: Mm-hmm. Not like just right beside your house, kind of, it'll be. Right, yeah. they'll
1: put it somewhere else, mm-hmm. exactly, yes.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, going back a little bit to what you're actually studying for your dissertation, um, you were talking about looking how people are adapting um, to climate fluctuation. I guess um, what are can you give an example of some of the things that you would study in particular from the artifacts that you find um, to actually determine uh, how they're adapting?
1: Right, it's um, a good question, and it's probably one I'm I'm actually going to tackle myself. So. <laughs> I haven't undertaken the analysis yet, but I have some inclinations that there should be some signs that there are certain adaptations. Uh, one is the uh, type of animal that they're butchering. So if there's a restriction on the water resources, then it's likely that they are going to um, uh, they'll, they'll back away essentially from that water resource, because other animals will flock to it. And if there's a human presence right beside that water resource, then it's unlikely other animals will approach it. Mm -hmm. So we would like to find, or we assume that hominin remains will be found at some distance from that site. And during times of water restriction, they might be grasping at straws or butchering anything they can so anything from waterfowl to from earth from small animals all the way to big animals Hmm. when there's no restriction on water humans are probably much more mobile and they're free to attack you know and kill butcher any animal Hmm. um, that they want but they also might just go for the larger game rather than scrambling to get anything. So we might look for a discrepancy between the faunal remains, what kind of zoo archaeological material there is. Mm -hmm. Big game versus small game, uh, things like this. Another one is the stone tool types. Um, If if One indication of a butchering site is uh, butchering tools, obviously. So we might find a surplus of uh, microlithic blades, um, burns, um, scrapers, things like this rather than a stone tool production site. Mm. Uh, at a stone tool production site we'll find something like just debitage and cores, the raw material that you would use. Mm. So the proximity of this in relation to a water resource might also vary depending on the climatic conditions as well. Mm. Uh, so it's it's these are just some of the things we'll be analyzing.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Going in, do you have an idea of what the climate fluctuations were, or are you, are you going to rely on your research to give you an idea of that?
1: There's been a lot of work already done reconstructing the paleoclimactic record. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have it memorized, but I know that within the stratigraphy that we have, there are different fluctuations. So there's periods of... Uh, warm and dry spells mm-hmm. uh, that lasted you know 10,000 years or so and then there'll be more cool and drier times as well. And so there's there's basically a cycle within that region and this plays into the larger uh, global um, climate of the time, which from about 250,000 years ago to the present uh, goes through interglacial periods where, uh, there'll be extensive glaciers covering North America and northern Eurasia as well. Mm. Um, and these all influence the regional temperature.
0: Um, did you always think that you were going to, this is what you're going to be doing? Like when you, maybe even high school, undergrad, uh, did you go straight through and get into archaeology?
1: Uh, that's a good question. I, I did, in a sense, uh, when I was in high school, I was very... Uh, well, let me see if I can be gentle here. I was put into a private Christian school, and I was very unsatisfied with the, the answers about uh, life and biology and the human behavior that I received. And so it was about that time that I decided I wanted to study human behavior. And my options were, you know, what I looked at was psychology and anthropology. And I started in psych in my first year, but I I found that during these interview, these mock interviews that you would have with people um, to try to get their opinion or their uh, essentially allowing them to analyze their own behavior, I found that they could really uh, deceive me, and uh, as well as if I was in if I was the interviewee, I could be deceptive as well. Uh, Not to take anything away from psychology, of course. Um, But I thought the easiest way for me to analyze human behavior without a lot of uh, deception is to analyze the archaeological record where there's dead individuals and they can't talk to me. It also kind of, um, uh, you kind of also deviate from any ethical uh, implications to do with um, cultural sensitivity or things like um, dealing with uh, human subjects as part of your research. So when it comes to, um, you know, static stone tool, um, faunal, or even um, pottery remains, these don't really uh, hold any ethical implications. Hmm. And I I found that uh, really intriguing. As well as human evolution, I wanted to really understand how this occurred uh, over long periods of time. And archaeology just seemed to not only hold my interest, but be a way to answer these questions that I had.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. I had a very similar experience with going to a private Christian high school mm-hmm. <laughs> and not being completely satisfied with the answers that were given. I feel like I study people, but in a very casual way, and then I interview people and right, right. write news stories about them. Does that background inform your work now in that you you mentioned you're just looking for this quest for answers to questions that were left unanswered. Did you find answers to some of those questions or did you just have a whole new crop of questions come up?
1: Uh, Both actually, yes. Um, Now that I'm at the PhD level, it's kind of a given that you should understand the material that you've worked on in the past. And I think that has helped uh, answer some of my basic questions. that I had as a high schooler. Um, moving forward, obviously, there's different research questions I have in mind, but I've really understood the way in which these questions are analyzed, uh, particularly through the scientific me- method, <clears throat> and that is, you know, using hypotheses, uh, getting replicable, replicable results, and um, peer review. And these have been absolutely instrumental to me, and as well as valuable in understanding the way that uh, research operates. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I'm just wondering if I can give you an example here, um, s- such as our relationship to the Anderthals. I, As a youngster, I, I didn't entirely understand it probably just because I hadn't developed to the level where I understood the concept of genetic drift, uh, bottlenecking, as well as uh, the mechanisms of human adaptation and evolution, both biological and cultural. Looking at them now, I understand that you know we have a very intimate relationship with Neanderthals and a lot of us are uh, have a high percentage, high is in terms of three to five percent within our own uh, homo sapien genome and the National Geographic uh, Society will be able to sequence everyone's genome to test what percentage of Neanderthal Hmm. each individual is. It's about 200 bucks, but I encourage everyone to do it. And I'd like to do that myself someday.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's the Neanderthal test. Interesting. How much longer will you be working on your PhD? Do you you expect it to be, or you said your your first year, so you've got a ways to go, right?
1: Yes, that's correct. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, so traditionally the PhD is about five years. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not familiar with anyone doing it quicker than that, but I am very familiar with people taking a lot longer than that. So it really depends on how well your research turns out, um, funding, um, and for me, possibly even geopolitical situations. Um, for instance, with Jordan, it's you know, situated in the Middle East, and there's often conflict that arises there. Mm-hmm. So if we're unable to return, that might stymie my research for a bit. Mm-hmm. It, it all depends. But um, it would be nice to be done within the allotted time as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Will mm-hmm. your, um, if, you, if you are able to tur- return and you go back to Jordan, um, will that continue right up until you're done? Or will you be doing research for a set amount of time and then um, at home doing, finishing your dissertation?
1: If, we, if uh, we do get additional funding, I'll probably return each year with April and her team. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, I will be undertaking the analysis um, here at the University of Victoria. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it'll happen in tandem as well, but at some point I'll just say, okay, this is my data set. I'm going to work with that. Anything extra that we recover will just be analyzed by someone in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at some point you have to just say, okay, <laughs> That's enough. I'm going to do my work. Yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> after — I mean, it's probably way too early to think about this, but is this something you want to continue doing, like working um, on excavation sites and doing this kind of research? Or do you have other ideas of what you might want to pursue afterwards?
1: No, absolutely. This uh, this would be absolutely ideal for me to pursue afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suppose the next step after a PhD is now the postdoc, um, which I see no reason why I shouldn't apply for but that is quite a ways down the road. Mm-hmm. After that, I, I certainly wouldn't object to a position as a museum curator, um, a professor, but uh, I would also like to kind of delve into the world of science writing as well. Hmm. Um, but ar- being, remaining involved in archaeological excavations would be a, a passion of mine, something that I would like to continue to pursue. Even now, I'm involved in several other Uh, excavations, two of which are situated in Israel. Each summer I return to them as well, Hmm. just to uh, help out.
0: What are you looking at there?
1: Uh, There, at one site, uh, Telesophy Gath, we're excavating the biblical city. Um, It's mentioned in the book of Kings, I believe, and Samuel. Uh, Gath of the Philistines and hmm. that's an Iron Age site and below that is a Late Bronze Age site and an Early Bronze Age site. So it's one of these tells, these stratified mounds and that's run by a coalition of universities, um, Melbourne in Australia, bar in Israel, the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, uh, which is where I did my undergrad and my master's as well. So that is kind of my foot in the door to that site.
0: mm mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, and that's just sort of extra work for fun that you're doing uh, as you do your PhD?
1: That's right. Yeah, right.
0: That's, okay. Yeah. How do you get connected to all these uh, these sites and get in there? Is it just a matter of uh, people that you're meeting through your coursework and, I don't know, conferences, things like that?
1: It, yes, that's part of it, definitely. Um, I got into that particular site as an undergrad, um, through which I just kind of took a chance and asked the professor if I could tag along. But when you when you invest in a field school, you have to see it as something that will hopefully boost your career. And that's something you really have to delve into, hold hardly. And what I mean by that is see it as an investment. You're there to make connections. You're there to work hard. You're there to prove to people that you're valuable. So they'll not only want you back, but they might fund your return as Mm -hmm. well. So if you go there and you're, you have a sloppy time, um, you don't make a lot of academic connections, you'll probably go nowhere, Mm -hmm. which is just the reality of the situation. But, uh, I had a lot of encouragement to really push the boundaries and talk to, um, people who were much more knowledgeable about myself. And through that, I made academic connections and it seems to have worked out well, Hmm. at least so far.
0: Um, and when do you plan on going back to the site in Jordan or is that that totally up in the air right now?
1: No, we, uh, we're in the process of booking our flights right now. Um, we've got our little field house already and we should be flying out probably the middle of May and that'll last for a whole month of that excavation.
0: Wow. That's soon. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. That's exciting. That's, uh, that's pretty much all I have for the interview. I want to say thanks so much for joining me today and talking about this with me.
1: No problem. My pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to Beyond the Jargon. If you want to listen again, go to our website, cfuv.uvic.ca, and click on the Listen tab.